Welcome to a new conversation on the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Casey. We're living in an era of increased longevity for many segments of the population, and the number of people who will live to and past 100 is increasing rather dramatically. So what does it mean for you if you live to 100? And what does it mean if others around you are living to 100 in increasing numbers? Today, we'll be talking with the author of the new book, The Big 100, The New World of Superaging. William J. Cole, recently retired as the New England news editor for the Associated Press, is a veteran journalist and former foreign correspondent who has reported from North America, Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. A grandson of a woman who lived to just shy of 104, Cole's been writing about extreme longevity since the 1990s when he was based in Paris and told the world the extraordinary story of Jean Calmat, who lived to 122. His many awards include one from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers for an investigation into the exploitation of undocumented immigrants by the Walmart retail chain. A 2022 fellow in aging journalism at Columbia University in New York and at the National Press Foundation in Washington, D.C., he speaks English, French, Dutch, and German and resides in Warwick, Rhode Island. The Big 100 is his first book. Bill, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Joe. Very excited to talk to you about your book. And I'm curious first, what inspired you to write The Big 100? Well, the genesis of this book in some ways goes back to my youth. I have a centenarian, had a centenarian in my family. Of course, back then we didn't know she was going to live almost to 104. But my mother's mother, my grandmother, was a larger than life figure in my family. And she was born in 1899 and died in 2003. So her life touched parts of three centuries, which always blew me away. And uh, she was a very dynamic woman. She lived with us for a time in the 70s and cured herself of arthritis by putting herself on a very sort of all-natural foods diet well before that became a thing, really. She used to play the piano for the silent movies. <laughs> she had some real cool stories to tell. Just coming from a, a generation that people in their uh, fedoras and flapper dresses and everything. And I just, so that kind of kindled within me, I think, a fascination for centenarians. And then fast forwarding to the mid 90s when I was based in Paris for the Associated Press and told the world the incredible story of Jean Calmont, who um, is still the oldest person who ever lived whose age could be authenticated by records, an important distinction. And she lived to 122 years and 164 days. My very spirited and funny woman, and my, my favorite quote from her was, I only have one wrinkle and I'm sitting on it. That's a keeper. It is. So given your family background, longevity is not theoretical for you. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your grandmother and about your mother. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, my grandmother did have to go through some some hardship. She lost her husband in her 60s and then lived another 50 years. Well, not 50, but another more than 40 years without him. But again, just a very, very positive person. I think this is what we find many centenarians have in common, this incredible positivity, good sense of humor, able to bounce back from life's setbacks. And 
she was a, so healthy and vibrant that we have vivid memories of her in her early 90s at a family wedding out on the dance floor, kicking her leg up to my shoulder level, somewhat immodestly, too, I might say. But anyway, we, this is the kind of person she was. Now, my mom, her daughter, is uh, 92. She'll be 93 in uh, January. Uh, still living in the house I grew up in, in Foxborough, Massachusetts, uh, living independently. Very, very dynamic. We, we took her grocery shopping a few weeks ago, and she was power walking through the Shaw's supermarket at such a pace. We had trouble keeping up with her. And my wife took a little iPhone video of her, put it on TikTok. And she, so far, I think at last count, she's got almost 100,000 views. My mom, the TikTok star. Hopefully she'll have some advice for our patriots. Oh, she's been through, like all of us, we've been through through that. That's <laughs> So I had the opportunity to, to interview a woman on the podcast this year, 102, Dr. Gladys McGarry. She's a, a pioneer in the holistic medicine field. And great conversation with her about her book, The Well-Lived Life. When you talk with many centenarians for the book, I really enjoyed hearing those stories and the points that came out of them. So what if you could tell us about one or two of them and what you learned from them? Sure. The most memorable would have to be Hilda Senhaus, who is 112. If all goes well, and it looks like it from this point, she'll be 113 in February of next year. So just a few months away. She is remarkable for many reasons, not least of which, and we can talk a little bit more about this on the podcast, she's Black. and. People of color have a longevity disadvantage in, in, in many respects, but she is extremely sharp. I don't think she has any cognitive impairment at all. She's very funny, cracks jokes, wants to talk about politics, huge fan of Barack and Michelle Obama, and her, her, the walls of her home are decorated with photographs and letters from the White House she got. And she's a real pistol. She, she actually is, she's got a lot of good social circles. Another you know, common trait that many centenarians have, uh, a recipe for a, a long and healthy life includes avoiding social isolation. And Hilda does this by going to church every Sunday, uh, going out to eat with her girlfriends all the time, and even going to play the slots at the Encore Casino <laughs> on the outskirts of Boston. So she's a, a very dynamic person. I guess one of the most amazing things I can say about her physically is that as I was sitting with her in her apartment, interviewing her, I was looking at my notes and I was fumbling for my glasses when it occurred to me that Hilda, who is 50 years older than I am, doesn't wear them. Amazing. Great stuff. And what are some stats? You have many of them in your book. What are some stats that can give us a sense of the likelihood of living to 100? Yeah, great question. Well, honestly, we are aging in the United States by practically every metric. We're, we're, hitting, we're going to hit a, a very important milestone just a little over 10 years from now, in 2034, when the numbers of Americans who are 65 and older will outnumber those who are 18 and younger for the first time in our history. And the numbers of people who are 85 and older are rapidly growing. It's one of the great, fastest growing subsets of the population. What's really driving this 
what I call a new world of super aging is really twofold. One is just demographics. So the baby boomers, a huge generation numerically, are getting older. I'm one of them. I think you might be too, Joe. <laughs> and there's a, at least 70 million of us, some, by some counts, uh, a bit more than that. The oldest of us is about 77 right now. So in the next 25 years, the fittest of those people will age into triple digits. And interestingly, centenarians tend to occur in one in 5,000 in the population in general, in many places. At least this is according to Tom Pearls at the New England Centenarian Study, which is the, the largest of its kind in the world. And so just by virtue of there being so many boomers aging, we're going to see a sort of algorithmic increase in the numbers of people living to 100. And then there's a medical and technological piece where we are doing a better job at treating and in some cases curing the things that kill us. And we're also developing technologies that are helping us monitor our, our body systems, detecting stroke before it happens and, and things like this. Our smartwatches do some of that now, and, and there are new technologies, more of like a smart skin that, that we could be well be wearing at some point in the next decades. So these things are prompting Stanford's Center on Longevity to project that half of all five-year-olds alive today will live to 100 by 2050. And by 2100, they expect that 100 years old will be the life expectancy for all American newborns. So this is quite astonishing when you think about it. I know that some in the gerontological community are a little skeptical of that. That's a bold projection for sure. But, and all of this incidentally is a little counterintuitive, right? Because COVID took a hit on our, our longevity. But we are rebounding from that, just as we did from the influenza pandemic of 1918, where we, and after World War I, when our lifespans were half of what they are today, the long-term trend lines are, are better. And from what you learned, how big a factor are genetics versus lifestyle behavioral choices we make in longevity? Yeah, so the, the latest research certainly seems to give credence to our behaviors as a big piece of the puzzle, there's no question that genetics is, it plays a key role. I, many of us watched with great interest Dan Butner's uh, Living to 100, you know, the Blue Zones documentary on Netflix. You would be hard-pressed to find any mention of genes in that entire series. But he, he does obviously accentuate diet and exercise, the things that we can do and, you know, we, human nature being what it is, we don't want this to be outside of our control. We want to be able to call the shots, including how long we can live. And, if, and fortunately, there are some things we can do to optimize our genetic makeup. So the prevailing thinking is that our behaviors, our diet, our exercise, the amount of sun exposure we allow ourselves, things like this account for about 75% of what gets us to 90. And then from that point on, the genes, the genetic piece, increasingly plays a, a more prominent role and more like 50% of getting us to 100. And then once you're past 100 and then you're, you get into the realms of, of the woman I mentioned, Hurlda, who's a super centenarian, someone who's 110 or above, 
then the, the genetics piece is really accounted for almost all. I mean, that she has hit all five lottery numbers plus the Powerball. <laughs> and you mentioned in your book another interesting insight on the Blue Zones, a lot of positive behavioral examples there. But there's a fun fact, an interesting fact that you uncovered. Actually, despite all of those great longevity stats, they actually don't produce as many centenarians as you would think. Sure, sure, sure. Yes, yes. And this is an important thing. There's a lot of hype around the Blue Zone. And they have been described as almost being centenarian factories. And we're talking here about the only one in the United States, Loma Linda, California, and then Okinawa, Japan, the Greek island of Ikaria, Sardinia in Italy, and the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. And then the Blue Zones organization recently added Singapore as a, a blue zone. Okinawa may cease to be a blue zone soon because of rising obesity and, and just generally poorer health there. But the numbers just don't bear out that they produce significantly more 100-year-olds than anywhere else. What they, the numbers do show clearly is that people tend to live into their 80s and 90s with incredible vitality. And so certainly not to disparage the blue zones by any means. Uh, lots we can learn. But I always tell people that if you're contemplating moving to one of those places, pack your jeans. And I don't mean the denim variety. Well said. So what are some of the life hacks you learned from centenarians and the longevity experts that you interviewed? Yeah. So I think first for me, what really tops the list is that they handle toxic stress very well. And stress is the enemy of longevity. For the book, I, I had some really interesting conversations with Martin Picard, who is a, a biologist who was studying these things. And stress really affects us right down to the mitochondrial level in our cells. And, and it's amazing. It's one of the reasons why I made some changes to my own life to try and avoid it. And centenarians tend to do a very good job of handling stress. When you talk to them, as I have, you'll hear a lot. Don't sweat the small stuff. And people, they're, they're not easily aggravated. They just they have, either they're just psychologically wired to be chill, or they have learned some good things, good techniques to just sort of chill out. Other things, we mentioned positivity. There was a fascinating study recently, last few years out of Yale, that suggested having a positive attitude, not just in general, being positive, but having specifically a positive attitude about our own aging specifically can add up to seven and a half years to our lifespan. And that's an incredible, more than what we gain by watching our cholesterol and exercising and, and our diet and all of that combined. And of course, people who are positive tend to do those things anyway, as, as well as not smoke. And they, they tend to go easy on the booze. That's a key thing. We also mentioned social isolation. People in the blue zones and many centenarians who are successful tend to not be languish in solitude. And that's key as well. The Surgeon General has proclaimed loneliness a public health crisis. And the National Institute on Aging says that it's the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day, which is a lot. They even suggest that it could subtract as many as 15 years from our 
lifespan. So that's pretty extraordinary and something to pay attention to. They move through their environments in a gentle way. This was a, a good lesson for me. I've been an endurance athlete, a marathoner, and a competitive runner for a long time. That's not what these guys do. And they don't go in the gym and pump like bench press 300 pounds. They just move gently through their environments in a way that keeps them fit, uh, gives them some cardiovascular fitness, but doesn't hammer their bodies, their musculoskeletal systems and all of that. So uh, I just had the joy of, of having the one of the indignities of being a guy in his 60s uh, yesterday when I got my first cortisone shot with an eight-inch needle right into my knee. I do not recommend this. <laughs> but, it's a rite of passage. Yeah, apparently. I'm waiting for the next one, kidney stone. That's going to be even worse. But anyway. Coming soon. <laughs> so what did you learn about cognitive decline that surprised you? Well, that it's not inevitable. This is probably the number one fear that people have when they contemplate a 100-year life or even just an 80-year, right? Will I be intact? Will I, will I know what's going on? Will I recognize the people I love and be able to have conversation, even if my movement physically is a little curtailed. Can I read the paper and all, all of that? And we throw a lot of money at this problem. My heart goes out to people who are caring for, or in some cases themselves, are suffering from Alzheimer's and other dementia. It is a nightmare, absolutely a nightmare. And But there's some bright spots there. The FDA this year approved a couple of drugs that the uh, Look promising in terms of at least slowing the progress of Alzheimer's disease. A cure still eludes us, but there's a lot of money being spent. A um, particular study that really kind of made me sit up a little straighter in my chair when I saw it was one uh, done a couple of years ago in the Netherlands of 340 independently living centenarians in Holland, ranging in age from, I think, 100 to 108. And they, most of them had incredible uh, cognitive abilities. They, very few actually suffered any cognitive impairment and scored high on cognitive tests uh, the way somebody in their 60s or 70s would, would score. And as part of the, the arrangement for being in the study, they all agreed to have their brains examined upon their eventual deaths. And there were two things that were really remarkable. The first thing is that many of those people just didn't have any signs of the, the telltale plaques and tangles that, that we see as signs of Alzheimer's disease. They just didn't have, they, nothing was there. They had clean brains that looked much younger than their years. And then of particular interest was a subset who had the plaques and tangles, indicating that Alzheimer's was present in their brain tissue but they had never experienced any symptoms at all. And that is really interesting. And of course, if that merits more study and, and there are researchers looking specifically at that, imagine, of course, for example, if we could come up with a drug that would mimic that. So that's sort of a bright spot on the horizon. The point being that it's not inevitable and we should take all the steps we can to avoid behaviors that might put us at risk for for Alzheimer's, but it may not be our destiny, which is good news. You point out in the Big 100 that we're in the midst of a longevity revolution. As you pointed out earlier, 
not for all. What are some possible solutions to close some of those gaps around race, gender, socioeconomics, et cetera? Yeah, it's a really important question. I, it's the one that sort of troubles me the most. White Americans live on average about six years longer than Black Americans, and that's a lot of time when you think about it. The ranks of centenarians are, are, are a pretty white space. Uh, of course, you have to go back taking to, into account our racial and ethnic makeup 100 years ago. These are those people. But even so, our, in about in just a couple of decades, we will be a, a majority minority nation where white Americans will they'll, they'll be like they'll account for like 49 percent of the population. And already uh, people of color account for, you know, around 40 percent when you look at, you know, across the board. So this is really a problem that our, our neighbors and, and friends of color just don't get as much time to live. In the book, I, I describe life as being at its essence about time, time to live, time to love, time to do the things we were passionate about and, and hang out with the people who mean the most to us. They get less time. Rich people get more time. Another inequity. We say money can't buy you love, but it can help you lease more life. <laughs> how, how is that fair? So I think uh, talking to researchers, and there's been a lot of work done around this, we know the things that we need to do. Really, the, the single biggest thing is just to lift people out of poverty. There's a, a terrible reality in the United States where just by virtue of being born in the wrong zip code, you may live or die earlier. And it's, it's not nice to contemplate these things. But people who are able to have to go to college and earn a four-year degree, are they have a longevity. And why is that? Well, they tend to obviously earn better pay. They can live in, in neighborhoods that aren't polluted or environmentally unsound. They can live in places that maybe are a little less crime-ridden. And they can buy fresh food to eat. They, they have the time to exercise, all things that a lot of people in communities of color struggle to do. We have food deserts all over the place in the United States. Where, and people who, who are trying to make ends meet are encountering that toxic stress that we talked about, too. So trying to make difficult decisions about whether to pay rent or feed their kids with a wholesome meal. Big problems, but as you mentioned, a lot of work's being done to come up with some solutions to begin to close those gaps, and that's encouraging. Yeah. I think that was a big takeaway that I had in reading your book, particularly around food deserts and other things. It's really a cumulative effect of all these things piling, piling right. up. Yes. Many are unnecessary. But I'd like to shift gears, and I know our listeners will be very interested in hearing about your personal experience in early retirement. What's it been like so far, and what surprised you the most? Yeah. <laughs> so I retired, and I put that in quotation marks, a year ago. Uh, I left my longtime job at the Associated Press. I had worked for them mostly as a foreign correspondent, spent a lot of time in Europe, came back to the States and was our New England editor. But again, I, I learned early on in my research for the book that toxic stress is not a recipe for a long and healthy life. And there was no shortage of that, Joe, in the 24-hour news cycle. So I decided to exit that and work at a more humane pace on book projects. But again, yeah, we talked about 
cognitive decline being a fear that many of us have about aging. I think probably the number one fear when I talk to people about living long, especially living to 100, is where the heck am I going to find enough money to pay a century's worth of bills? And that came home to roost for me personally, where I did obviously do my due diligence and took a hard look at my finances before I left full-time employment at 62, but ended up getting a side hustle by doing some copy editing for Axios, which I do now in the early mornings, because I enjoy keeping my hand in journalism, but also because it helps me make bank. And you know, I don't want to run out of money either. My um, Tom Pearls, who I mentioned, who runs the New England Centenarian Study, has developed a longevity calculator that takes into account many, many factors, including the genetic and family history stuff, but also our current behaviors, whether we do or have smoked our alcohol consumption, all kinds of stuff. And because I'm a grandson of a centenarian and my mom is 93 and looks like she's a candidate for 100, I took the I ran my stuff through the calculator and it spit out a result of 102 for me. So, and then the the fine print said, have you saved enough money to live that long? I thought, well, maybe not. So that's a big thing that I have been dealing with is just trying to make sure that that is my fiscal house is in order. I can talk a little bit about, this is a problem in the United States. I mean, the average American only has $30,000 saved for retirement, which is obviously woefully insufficient, woefully. And talk to William Beach, the former commissioner of the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics for the book, and he told me that about 40% of Americans are relying solely on Social Security. And with the average check being around 1700 bucks a month, I think our fears of elder poverty are not unfounded. That to me, that's already what that's just a little over thirty thousand dollars a year. Maybe that's okay if your house is paid off and, and you're living a, a very measured and existence. But these are things that we're all thinking about. And you mentioned earlier that you've made some changes personally based on what you uh, came across in the research conversations in the book. One of them was the retirement decision, reducing that that stress. Are there any other changes that you'd like to share that you're doing differently today from what you learned? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I did was give up alcohol. My, I do have exceptional longevity among the women in my family, and that tends to bear out in many families, in most families. You know, uh, women do have a longevity advantage over men, and we see more women who are in their hundreds than we do men. But my father died at 67. My brother, I'm the eldest of three boys, the middle brother died at 59, just about two years ago, of alcoholism. And so, you know, that's in my family. And I thought it would probably be a good idea to just eliminate that variable and not be, not expose myself to, to something like that. So, so that's a change I've made for sure. I am still trying to stay active. I don't run marathons anymore, but I'm still getting out four or five days a week and, and doing some miles. So, you know. Outstanding. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about the Big 100. Best wishes with the book and your next one as well. Thanks for having me. May you live 100 years, yeah. Joe, if you want to. Definitely do. And well, I have a lot of good ideas on your life hacks to continue to, to, to do and, and some new ones add. So thank you for that. Awesome.
All the best. So it's time for the takeaway segment where you and I can share our ideas on what actions we can take following this conversation today with Bill Cole. I'll share mine. Make note of yours. Here's what jumped out to me. Number one, how's your attitude? There's a lot of things you'll bring to your retirement, and an attitude about retirement is among the most important. So how are you thinking about it? How is your attitude today? And keep in mind, there's a lot of things that you can't control about your retirement, like the stock market, the weather, etc., but you can control your attitude. And Bill mentioned the important research done by Becca Levy at Yale that really demonstrates how positively or negative your attitude is about aging and mean on average, no pun intended, up to 7.5 years of longevity. So check your attitude. Number two, chill out. This is an important one, certainly for many of us, certainly for me. I'm underscoring it and highlighting it as we speak. And that's really about dealing with stress. Many people think, well, when I retire, I won't have any stress because I won't have to deal with my boss and those annoying coworkers each and every day. But new stressors, new sources of stress are bound to show up, including being alone. A lot of people are surprised by, as they get older, how much time, what percentage of time they now spend alone. That can be rejuvenating for some, stressful for others. So what's your plan to manage stress, even if it comes in some different forms? Take the lesson from Bill about his observations about centenarians. They tend to get less aggravated than perhaps many of us. Number three, what if you do, in fact, live to 100? Do you have the right plan in place, both financially and non-financially? Run the numbers, plan the scenarios, look at who will take care of you, et cetera, et cetera. A lot to think about there. Think about what if you live to 100. Thanks for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. My mission is to help you retire smarter by balancing your retirement planning with an eye toward the non-financial side of your retirement. You can browse all of our episodes at a glance across six seasons at my website, retirementwisdom.com. Thanks for listening. 